1: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio.
0: The Trump campaign has seen a revolving cast of lawyers pursuing its lawsuits challenging the election results, particularly in Pennsylvania, where the lawsuits have been concentrated. The law firm Porter Wright Morris and Arthur withdrew from representing the campaign on Friday. And the lawyer who took over the case, Linda Kearns, moved to withdraw on Monday. The Lincoln Project, a group of Republicans who opposed President Trump, had started a media campaign against the law firms helping the Trump administration to contest Joe Biden's victory, specifically naming Porter Wright and Jones Day, the nation's 10th largest law firm. Trump's communications director, Tim Murtaugh, said, Leftist mobs descended upon some of the lawyers representing the president's campaign, and they buckled. The president's team is undeterred and will move forward with rock-solid attorneys to ensure free and fair elections for all Americans. Trump has picked Rudy Giuliani, his personal attorney, to lead his post-election legal battles, and Giuliani filed an application to join the case in Pennsylvania, which the other lawyers had left, just hours before a hearing was set to start. Joining me is Christopher Opfer, Bloomberg Law Team Leader for the Business of Law. So Chris, tell us about Jones Day.
2: Sure. Jones Day is one of these just massive uh, law firms. It's the 10th largest firm in the country uh, with more than a billion dollars with a B in gross revenue per year. Uh, I think they've got more than a thousand attorneys across the country. Uh, based uh, originally founded in Cleveland, Ohio, but has been come to be known as one of these white shoe Washington, D.C. firms. Um, that's really been a revolving door with sending attorneys into high-ranking positions in the federal government throughout the years. But um, certainly in, in during the Trump administration, Jones Day has been uh, the law firm most closely associated by many people with the Trump administration. The firm itself um, advised the Trump campaign back for the 2016 election, continued to advise the campaign uh, and the RNC throughout uh, the next four years leading up to the most recent election, um, and has continued to be involved in lawsuits related to the election um, since Election Day just a few weeks ago. And so during Trump's administration, we saw several notable Jones Day lawyers fill top roles within the government. Uh, The one that most people are familiar with, of course, is Don McGahn, who was formerly White House counsel before returning to Jones Day last year. Um, Another lawyer named Noel Francisco was solicitor general, which is essentially uh, the face of the Trump administration in the Supreme Court, arguing any cases on behalf of the government in the high court. He was there for most of President Trump's first term before returning to Jones Day last year.
0: The Lincoln Project started a social media campaign about Jones Day. What was the message of that campaign and how successful was it?
2: Well, the message was really that, uh, Jones Day attorneys and the firm itself, in the eyes of the folks at the Lincoln Project, should be ashamed of themselves for participating in these post-election lawsuits, um, which, at least according to the folks at, at the Lincoln Project, are nothing more than an assault on, on American democracy, uh, baseless attempt to undo the, the results of the fair and free election. And so it was two prong. Number one, they were building sort of a uh, online public uh, sense of outrage against the firm itself. And then they were attempting to pressure major Jones day clients, including companies like general motors to stop doing business with the firm over this this issue.
0: Did it work? What kind of repercussions did Jones day have from this media campaign?
2: Well, it certainly had some impact. Um, So the, the, The same campaign was also aimed at a smaller law firm called Porter Wright, which was involved in some of the other cases involving the Trump administration. And that firm has since pretty quickly backed away and and withdrawn from participating in those suits. Jones Day is involved in one single suit right now, and they're actually representing the Republican Party of Pennsylvania rather than the Trump campaign itself. Um, But it's one of those lawsuits that's aimed at. Uh, challenging the results of the election in Pennsylvania overall and and certainly is affiliated with the Trump administration and the campaign uh, efforts there. And so they have not away, and it seems unlikely that they will back away, given the firm's history uh, and leadership, just not the type of folks who who, uh, will to this sort of public pressure. But um, it has caused quite a stir within um, the halls of Jones Day, and particularly at his Washington, D.C. office. We reported that late last week, uh, a, a large group of attorneys there at Jones Day's D.C. office uh, in a series of meetings with the head of the D.C. office raised some, um, a number of concerns regarding the firm's involvement in the case. Uh, that uh, meeting was described as very tense by some of the people who were there. Basically, the attorneys were saying that the firm is risking its good name, its uh, sort of professional uh, name in, in getting involved in something like this.
0: So Chris, Jones Day said it's not representing any entity in any litigation challenging or contesting the results of the 2020 general election. In light of that Pennsylvania case, is that strictly true?
2: That is incorrect. Um, And so Jones Day has made a big deal uh, of not representing the Trump campaign or the RNC itself in much of the ongoing litigation. And it is true that the firm is not involved in many of the cases uh, that have already been thrown out of court, both in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, and elsewhere. But the case that the firm is involved uh, in uh, is representing the Republican Party of Pennsylvania. Essentially, they're challenging um, Pennsylvania's Mail in ballot system. They say that um, the state has created this two tier system where people who sent their ballots in via mail did not have to jump through the various hoops uh, to prove that they are who they say they are, that folks who voted in person had to do things like uh, signatures, um, just sort of all the uh, ID requirements that you face when you go in to vote in person. And they say uh, the Jones Day lawyers say that this has created an unconstitutional two-tier system where uh, the the restrictions and the requirements for voting depend on whether or not you do it in by mail um, or in person. And so while that may not be um, directly aligned with the Trump campaign, uh, if a court were to rule uh, in favor of Jones, they certainly would be helpful uh, to the Trump campaign's effort to disrupt the uh, election, force recounts, um, and just generally sow some uh, uncertainty into the entire election process.
0: So Jones Day is might be feeling pressure. Tell us about its leadership structure, whether or not it pulls out of these suits. Is that dependent on the managing partner?
2: Certainly seems that way. The managing partner, Steve Brogan, who's been there for quite a while, is a hard-nosed uh, leader uh, that some say are very much in the mold of, of a Donald Trump in that uh, the buck stops with him. He's making um, a lot of these decisions. And certainly in such a high profile case like this one, a decision to remain on the case or to withdrawal certainly wouldn't wouldn't happen without uh, Brogan's um, uh, input for sure. And, you know, by, by all accounts, he's just not the type of guy who's going to um, decide not to do something simply because of the public pressure. Uh, What's interesting is that Brogan, of course, comes from um, sort of a Republican-leaning background. He's a Notre Dame law school guy. um, And and some of the most high-profile Jones Day attorneys in D.C. are also uh, Republican background, including some of the folks who worked for the Trump administration. But when we went back and looked at the Federal Election Commission records, uh, we found that 80% of donations – For political candidates in the last cycle from Jones Day attorneys individually, 80% of those went to Democratic candidates. And what we've heard from people inside the building is that they've always thought of it as a largely apolitical place. And while there may be some um, grumbling about uh, Jones Day's work on behalf of the Trump administration, it wasn't until recently with these election cases where folks really thought, this is different. This is something where we're Uh, actively working to to potentially undo a free and fair election.
0: Jones Day, as of October 19th, had received $2.9 million in legal fees from the Trump campaign and the Republican National Committee. But that's just a drop in the bucket to Jones Day, isn't it?
2: It sure is. Yeah, we're talking about a a firm that um, clocks more than a billion dollars in gross revenue every year. And so Uh, Certainly not doing it for the money, Um, although you could say that um, they're developing a client relationship and certainly making clear here that they're not going to um, stand down when they're representing their clients. Um, But, you know, one of the arguments that the firm has been making, including in response to some of the concerns that were raised by its own attorneys about their involvement in this particular Pennsylvania case, is that they're... uh, fighting for the rule of law. And so their argument is that we filed this case long before the election because we thought that there was a problem with Pennsylvania's um, election system. We did not know at the time, um, at least according to Jones State, that this was going to become this uh, closely, uh, tightly contested election and that all of these other lawsuits were going to follow. the firm is simply telling their, their attorneys that we're fighting for the rule of law here. We want to make sure that the Pennsylvania election system is constitutional, um, whether that uh, favors Democrats or Republicans.
0: The other law firm you mentioned, Porter Wright, they withdrew from the Pennsylvania case and said they'd no longer represent the Trump campaign and didn't say why. And the Trump communications director said, Leftist mobs descended upon some of the lawyers representing the president's campaign, and they buckled. Any hints as to why Porter Wright withdrew?
2: Well, we can say for sure that it came after some of the same pressure, much of the same pressure, really, that that Jones Day was facing, both externally and internally. Reportedly, there were similar meetings at Porter Wright, where associates at the firm were raising very similar concerns. Um, and reportedly at least one lawyer resigned uh, as a result of those concerns. But at the same time, I think it's interesting to keep an eye on these dockets and and what happens in these cases, because uh, myself and some of my reporters have been talking to legal ethics experts who have said, you really want to watch and see how long some of these lawyers stay on these cases because of the potential uh, ethics concerns and potential penalties, sanctions, etc., for pushing baseless cases. Um, anybody can sue anyone else for just about anything, but as the legal process goes on, at some point you have to present some evidence to, to back up what you're claiming. And if you don't have that evidence and it becomes clear that these uh, cases are nothing more than trying to clog up the system um, or slow down election counts, uh, those attorneys may be facing some sort of sanctions or penalties. And so the ethics folks that we spoke to said, if you see them start dropping out, that may be very well a recognition that they're uh, tiptoeing up against those ethical lines.
0: And their professional integrity is on the line. So do you see that as a concern to some of the lawyers within these firms that the integrity of the whole firm gets tarnished because of these cases?
2: I think so. And you, you particularly see that from attorneys at these huge firms. Remember, we're talking about Uh, Jones Day is a firm with more than a thousand attorneys. So there are just tons and tons of attorneys who are Jones Day attorneys who have absolutely no involvement in this case whatsoever. And you can see that they're saying, you know, we're being tarnished because of the Jones Day name, despite having no involvement in the case.
0: What seems like a clear example of the pressure is a lawyer for Trump's campaign yesterday said they're dropping out of the Pennsylvania lawsuit, challenging the election results. And this is a day after complaining about being harassed for her work, including by an attorney from a firm representing the state of Pennsylvania,
2: Absolutely. So Linda Kearns, who was a solo practitioner there in Pennsylvania, she actually became the lead attorney on that case after Porter Wright dropped out uh, in the face of some pretty significant public pressure. Uh, and then shortly after that, she told the court that she had received a threatening phone call uh, from an attorney at Kirkland and Ellis, which is one of the firms on the opposite side of that lit- litigation representing the state of Pennsylvania. Um, And and she told the court straight up that she was uh, bowing out because of some of these attacks. Interestingly enough, the um, attorney who is now the lead uh, Trump campaign attorney in that case, some some eagle-eyed reporters noticed that on his firm's website, they're already calling uh, President-elect Joe Biden the President-elect. And so there's some question there about um, how the campaign will feel about that.
0: Interesting. So, Chris, you study law firms. Have we seen law firms before? Law firms are sort of viewed in a different light than companies, at least to my mind, because they don't necessarily, they aren't necessarily endorsing the views of the people that they represent. You know, everyone's entitled to a lawyer. So is this attack on lawyers for whom they represent a change or has it been going on for a while?
2: I think you're you're hearing uh, voices uh, opposing and criticizing law firms' work on behalf of certain clients uh, louder and uh, growing certainly over time. You know, going back decades, particularly firms that work in criminal defense, are often get a hard time and get a significant amount of public criticism for representing people or companies that have been accused of these just really heinous things. But, but there has always been this idea that lawyers represent clients, and the, and the fact that a lawyer is representing a client doesn't necessarily mean that the lawyer um, supports the client, agrees with the client, thinks that what they did was right or what they're arguing is correct, um, but that everyone gets their day in court and everyone's entitled to a lawyer. What we'll be looking to see is that if any of this sticks and what happens next, Uh, just because Porter Wright dropped out of these particular cases, that doesn't mean that the firms are going to stop representing either the Trump campaign or the RNC going forward. Uh, And just because Jones Day is getting some heat here over this one case, I don't expect that to stop the firm from continuing to work in this space.
0: Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Chris. That's Chris Offer. Bloomberg Law team leader for the business of law. (laughs) President Trump has resumed with one of his most successful priorities as president, the appointment of federal judges to make the judiciary more conservative. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is poised to continue pushing the confirmations to the lifetime appointments through until Trump's term is over. The pair have confirmed more than 220 lifetime judicial appointees to the federal courts, including three Supreme Court justices. Joining me is Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond School of Law. Carl, so far, have any judges been confirmed during the lame duck session?
1: Yes, they have. Two were confirmed last week for the district bench, and this week five are scheduled. Uh, One was just confirmed this morning, and the other four will be confirmed this week, a second one today, and then the others by Thursday. And so seven will have been confirmed in the lame duck so far for the district courts.
0: Are these openings that have been in place for a while? Did they just come up?
1: Most of them have existed for some time. And, of course, if someone's confirmed this week, it means they've been through the process. They've been nominated and had committee hearings, approval votes in the committee, and then Uh, up for debate and then a vote on the floor. So they are not new, uh, virtually all of them, though there are a few that are. And so, uh, for example, there is a uh, circuit vacancy that was just created when Juan Toriello died, who served on the First Circuit, and someone was just recently nominated for that position after the election.
0: Let's concentrate on the district court nominations for a moment. Are these going through on party line votes, as we've seen with most of the circuit court nominations, or are these different?
1: Well, some are. For example, the one this morning uh, nominee for the Southern District of Mississippi was relatively close, 53 to 43, Uh, and so uh, we may see that with some of these nominees. Uh, especially if there's some controversy. And there's also the feeling, I think, among some Democrats that uh, Mitch McConnell is jamming through people uh, at the last minute after the voters have spoken uh, in terms of who they want to be nominating judges.
0: Has this happened before?
1: Yes. Um, You know, in recent administrations at the end of Uh, Obama's time, the Senate when McConnell was in the majority, uh, Republican Senate confirmed no one after July 6. Uh, So that gives you a sense of the discrepancy between then and now. On the other hand, at the end of Bush in 2007-2008, Democrats were in the majority and they confirmed 58 district judges and 10 circuit judges. Uh, as opposed to the Republican majority in 2015-16 confirmed only two circuit judges and 18 district judges. And so uh, there have been disparities depending on who's in the White House and who is in the control of the Senate.
0: Just explain once again the difference between these district court judges, who are sort of like the trial judges in a federal system, and what we normally concentrate on, which is the circuit court judges?
1: Well, um, this administration, the Trump administration, has focused like a laser on the appeals courts, and so there are only three vacancies now, and there were no vacancies for a short period, uh, which is the fewest since Ronald Reagan was president, uh, but has neglected to some extent the district vacancies and emergency vacancies. But the difference is, at the appellate level, uh, the rulings cover all of the states in a particular circuit, uh, as opposed to a district judge who really uh, only can't even bind people in the judge's own courthouse. And so, essentially, the appellate judges make more policy And 99% of cases, uh, the court of last resort is the appellate court that decides because the Supreme Court hears so few cases. And so that's why the administration has tried to keep all of those seats filled and may fill all three vacancies now. Uh, I think tomorrow we'll have Justice Amy Coney Barrett's replacement, uh, who's been nominated, Before judiciary for a hearing. And then the idea is to confirm him to her Seventh Circuit vacancy.
0: What do we know about Thomas Kirsch, who has been nominated Phil Coney Barrett's seat?
1: He is presently the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Indiana and has experience in private practice with Winston Strawn, I believe a Chicago firm, and uh, has served in and out of the Justice Department, U.S. Attorney's Office in Northern District of Indiana in his career, and I think is well regarded. But he looks like a number of other nominees of President Trump, I think. But we'll see. Has su- strong support from the home state senators in Indiana.
0: So tell us about Judge Raul Arias Marxquaque, who was nominated to fill the vacancy on the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And he
1: is a district judge whom Trump appointed to the District of Puerto Rico and has served for 18 months uh, in that capacity. And so he's a nominee for the First Circuit and I think that they will try to move his nomination as well. There's a third vacancy on the Seventh Circuit. Judge Flom assumes senior status on November 30 and the Republicans may try to fill that vacancy as well. And so uh, I think it was a smart or astute choice on the part of the administration to try to elevate someone who was already on the district bench and someone from Puerto Rico, because it, there's a bit of a tradition there um, to have someone from uh, Puerto Rico on the First Circuit. Uh, and so the administration has someone uh, they've already sent through the process, and uh, the Puerto Rico district judge was confirmed on a 96 to 3 vote um, and so had a very smooth uh, nomination confirmation process. Uh, And so I think the hope is that he would be uh, as smoothly confirmed uh, in this situation. Though again, it's after the election when he was nominated and would be confirmed if that happens.
0: Is there enough time to get all the confirmations for the Seventh Circuit done?
1: Well, maybe. I think the one that's already been made and has the hearing tomorrow for Kirsch, I think that could be done um, because then he would just need a committee vote, which could happen in December, and then a final vote, which could happen in December. The others are more difficult. It depends on when the First Circuit nominee has a hearing, and then there's no nominee yet for Judge Blomsey. Uh So that could be tight because they only have a small number of working days after Thanksgiving when they come back and then the senate turns over uh, I believe on the 5th or so of January and so um, it's just not clear that there are enough you know legislative days to um, approve all three of those circuit judges and then the question's also about district judges there are five others who um, are on the floor and so have had hearings and committee votes. And those five could easily be confirmed in December. But there are 20 more who have been nominated by the president but not even had a hearing yet. And I think there's a big question mark as to those. We don't know yet who's going to be on the hearing tomorrow. Besides Kirsch, it could be some district nominees but that's not clear. And so it's not at all clear that any of those 20 would be able to get through the process if the hearings are not held till December. That's a very tight time frame given what has to happen in that period.
0: So look back and on the 4 years of judicial nominations and tell us what President Trump and Mitch McConnell have accomplished.
1: Well, they've named three extremely conservative uh, and, and confirmed three extremely conservative Supreme Court justices, 53 so far, and counting similar appellate court judges, and 169 district judges after this week, uh, which is a relatively strong record, especially at the appellate level. So, for example, President Obama in two terms was able to confirm 55 appellate judges. So if only two more are confirmed, then President Trump would have matched that. And if he has all three confirmed, that would mean he named more in one term than Obama did in two.
0: Since Mitch McConnell has filled and looks likely to fill every single opening, what are the prospects for Joe Biden to appoint judges?
1: Well, there are some because, as I said, there are 22 vacancies at the district level where there are no nominees yet. So he's likely to inherit those. And then there's 20 more uh, who have been nominated for vacancies. They haven't had a hearing yet. So that would come to 42, even if everybody else were confirmed by McConnell. Um, And then there'll be uh, more people who assume senior status, Uh, and retire in the next year, so he may have a fair number of vacancies that he can fill, but mostly at the district level, not very many at the appellate level, unless judges presently sitting assume senior status. And there are a number of appellate judges who are eligible under the rule of 65 and have 15 years of service, Uh, and so some of them may well assume senior status in 20 Twenty-one.
0: So then, Biden would, to put it in colloquial terms, take back the nominations of those who haven't been confirmed yet.
1: They would expire when the new Senate comes in, and President Trump, of course, could re-nominate them in that period, right between the new Senate coming in and inauguration day. But I don't. Think that much is going to happen in that period. The Senate is getting organized, inaugurations being planned. The Senate may not even be in session much of uh, of that early part of January, so that's probably not realistic. Uh, that much would happen by way of confirmations in that period of time.
0: President Trump has been able to nominate and get confirmed some very conservative judges, as we've discussed. What will happen when a President Biden nominates a very liberal judge? Are they likely to get through if the Senate remains in Republican hands?
1: Well, a lot depends on what happens in the two Georgia races uh, that will be decided on January 5th. Uh, If Democrats are able to win both of those, then they would have a Senate majority uh, because the tie-breaking vote would be the vice president. Uh, There is that possibility. Um, If not, then McConnell, I think, would be the leader, and there would be a very thin majority uh, in the Senate. And I think it'll be a matter of negotiation between the White House and uh, McConnell. And Biden may, to some extent, have to moderate the type of people he chooses. I think he has a good relationship with Mitch McConnell. And with many other senators with whom he served. And so he knows the process very well, he chaired the Judiciary Committee and was on it for three decades or more, and has very good people around him to help with judicial selection. Cautiously optimistic that that will go smoothly.
0: That's Carl Tobias at the University of Richmond Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern. at Qatar